Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, everybody, hopefully you've turned in your Bible to 2 Peter. It's after 1 Peter. We are going to be looking at this book or this epistle or this letter for the next three weeks. Uh, We've got three weeks until we take a Christmas break for Wednesday nights, and it's a short letter. It's got three chapters, so um, I'm hoping to get chapter one done tonight, chapter two, and chapter three. Okay, so we're going to do a little bit of introductory issues. Um, Actually, 2 Peter is probably one of the most disputed books in the New Testament. Um, A lot of liberal... uh, Jerry and I were talking about this a little bit just a moment ago. A lot of liberal scholars actually deny that Peter even wrote it. So there's a lot of people out there that will say, it's not even written by Peter. I disagree with them. I hold to the historical view that Peter was indeed the author. And there's some question about the date of when it was written. We know that Peter died in 68 A.D., So it had to have been written before 68 A.D. We also know that he talks about possibly being at the end of his life. Nero was in power. So the date, we don't have an exact date, but probably somewhere between 65 and 68 A.D. is when the book was written. So the question then becomes, okay, who's the audience? Who's he writing this to? Well, we really have no idea who the original audience is. In 1 Peter, he gives a geographic location of who these are. In 1 Peter, it's it's believers in Asia who were predominantly Gentile. Here, he just starts out and says, you know, Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, (coughs) and he doesn't give a city. He doesn't give a geographic area. Uh, Most believe they're probably Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people. Why was he writing? Or who were the opponents? Because he's going to, especially in chapter, all of chapter 2 and pretty much most of chapter (coughs) 3, excuse me, he's going to warn believers about a group of false teachers um, who are perverting the gospel. So this deals a lot with false teachers creeping into the church. But there's some things that are pretty unique about 2 Peter. Five major themes, five things that come up that um, kind of are the, are the big ticket items in the book. Number one is the nature of Scripture. We're going to talk about that tonight. What does the Bible say about the Bible? Um, there's this call to continually remember. We're going to talk about that tonight. I'm, I'm writing these things as a way of reminder. I want to remind you. You need to remember. You need to remember. You need to remember. What I said earlier, there's a strong rebuke of false teachers. So we're going to talk about false teaching. How do you understand that and discern that? Chapter 3 spends a lot of time on the second coming. End times type stuff. And then the importance of godly living in a corrupt world. Okay. So let's look at the greeting. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's just read this. 
Simeon, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to, here's the audience, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Okay, now who's the audience? We don't know geographically who they are. It just says they've obtained a faith of equal standing with Peter. They have obtained a faith. When you start studying the original language, that word obtained is very interesting. It really means to receive faith by lot. It means to be appointed or ordained or chosen. It means to be divinely chosen. What it actually is saying here is that the faith that we received to even believe in Jesus was itself a gift of God. In other words, God sovereignly appointed us or predestined us to have faith, and it's something that we receive not by mere willpower. So faith is a gift. We don't often think about faith as a gift because oftentimes we think about faith as something that you do. Now, is faith something you do? Yes. Does God believe for you? No. But can you believe unless God gives you the ability to to believe? Um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 talks about faith being a gift. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even the faith that we have to believe in Jesus is a gift from God by grace. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you, it's been given to you, for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you to believe. So, We have been given or granted faith. And notice what Peter says there. It's a faith of equal standing with his. Now, what does that mean? It's a faith of equal standing. Well, who's Peter? We're going to talk about him this Sunday. We're going to talk about him this Sunday. He's an apostle, but what kind of apostle is Peter? Numero uno, okay? Peter is the top dog. He is the first of the apostles. He is the one that everybody looked to. So if there was anybody who was considered to be the top dog in Christianity at this time, it would have been Peter. But what does Peter say? You have a faith equal with ours. In other words, there's no difference between you and us. There's no difference between Peter and us. The same faith that Peter has as an apostle is the same faith that God has given to us to be Christians. And it's probably a Gentile audience because what did the Jewish people think? We're chosen people of God. We have this higher standing. And so Peter's saying, listen, your faith is of the same faith as mine. Everybody is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We all have an equal faith that God has given us before the living God. There's no like Jews have a better faith and Gentiles are down here. It's we all have been given saving faith, those who are saved. And so how has God given us this faith? Notice what it says there. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by 
the righteousness of our God and Savior. So how did we, when you trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, we were declared righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift. Isaiah 42, 6, I have called you, or I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the peoples, a light to the nations. Now, I want to show you something theologically here. And if you don't read it carefully, you may just just pass over it. Read very carefully the very last phrase in verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith and equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is God and Savior, is God, the question is, is Jesus Christ there called God? Or is, it, or is, it, is he talking about the Father and is he talking about the Jesus, Jesus in that passage of Scripture? No, he's talking about Jesus being God and Savior. Now, we often think of Jesus being our Savior, right? But is not Jesus also God? He's not the same person as the Father, but he shares full deity with the Father. And so Peter here saying is Jesus is fully God and he's fully our Savior. He's full deity. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing and glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, oftentimes if you come across those who are Jehovah's Witnesses that don't believe Jesus is God, you can take them to this passage of Scripture and say, look, Jesus is actually called God. Not the same person as the Father. It's obviously the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is fully God. In verse 2, what does Peter pray for us? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's a key word here for Peter. Knowledge. Knowledge. He wants us to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. Now, Do you have to have knowledge before you're saved of who Jesus is? To an extent, you do, right? You have to know you're a sinner. You have to know who Jesus is. You have to know He died on the cross. There's some knowledge you have to to know before you get saved, right? Once you get saved, do you have all the knowledge you ever want to have about Jesus? What do you have to do? Grow in that knowledge. So turn to the very last verse of 2 Peter. He starts with, I want you to be multiplying in knowledge. How does he end? How does he bookend it? Chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in the grace and knowledge. Chapter 1, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge. So one of the things... 
that's very, very important for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ is to grow in our knowledge of him, to know Jesus more fully. Then we get into what God has provided for us as Christians, God's provision. So let's read verses 3 and 4. Actually, yeah, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, there's a word again, of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, what his divine power has granted to us what? Does it say some things there? What's it say right there in verse 3? His divine power has granted to us what? All things pertaining to life and godliness. God has granted this to us. It's in what we call the perfect tense. It means that at our initial salvation, we were granted all things, but we continue to be granted all things. In other words, what Peter's saying is that because of God's divine power, he is giving us this continual supply of everything we need for two things life and godliness life is basically our eternal life what does jesus say in john 17 3 this is eternal life that they know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent godliness refers to our lifestyle who we are our conduct. Okay, so he's so let me just draw this on the board because I'm going to get here in just a moment. What has he done? He has granted us what? All things. Everything we need spiritually for eternal life everything we need spiritually to live the Christian life, everything you need, God has given that to you. Now think about that for a moment. Is there anything you as a Christian are lacking? No, because God's given you everything you need. Now this comes through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. God has called us. When the Bible speaks of calling, it's an effectual calling, which actually creates saving faith. At a point in time, God called you to himself. And when God called you to himself, God gave you the ability to come. Because before, you were dead in your sins and you could not come. Now, we're going to keep coming back to a passage of Scripture over and over again tonight, but I want to show it to you first to just look at what God has done for us in salvation. Romans 8.30. And look at the order here. We'll come back to this, but just let's just focus on the order. Those whom He predestined. What comes first? God 
predestined. He also, what comes second? Called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's a predestination, there's a calling, there's a justifying, there's a glorification. Okay? But the word called is in there. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? So we were called into fellowship. We were called out of darkness into light. 1 Peter 2.9, this is in 1 Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What was your condition before God called you? What does Peter say there? Where were we before God called us? In darkness, in sin, in bondage. What happened when God called you? Or what happened to you? Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In their case, that's unbelievers, the God of this world, that's Satan, the devil, has done what? He's blinded, he's blinded the minds of unbelievers from what? What's the devil done to unbelievers? He's blinded their minds from what? Seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. So right now, every non-believer is what? Blinded spiritually from what? Seeing the glories of Christ. Now they may know who Jesus is. They may know the facts about what he's done. But they are blinded to Jesus as Lord and Savior and they don't have a desire to come to Him and surrender to Him as Lord. Verse 5, For what we proclaim, what we preach, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Look what, ha- look what God does in verse 6. So what's the problem in verse 4? Non-believers are blinded. So what has God got to do to overcome blindness? Somehow he's got to take the blinders off. Okay? What does verse 6 say God does? For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. That sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? Let there be light. Has shown where? In our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you were in darkness, you were blinded, you were lost, you did not desire Jesus, you did not want to come to Jesus, but at a point in time, God called you. And when God called you, it was an effectual call where it actually created the faith for you to actually believe in Jesus and come to faith in Him. Now, what does verse 3 say? God has granted to us what? All things. Okay, I want to show you a parallelism. Because in verse 4, what does it say? By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Same word, right? Granted shows up twice, doesn't it? In verse 3, God has granted to us all things. In verse 4, God has granted to us, what does it say there? These precious and great promises. Precious and great promises promises so 
the all things and the precious and great promises are almost basically the same thing, just told in a little different way. God has given to us, God has granted, God has graced, God has gifted, whatever word you want to use. God has gifted, granted to us all things, and these all things can be defined as precious and great promises. So every great, powerful promise of God has been granted to us. So that, why? Look at the, look at the, the middle of verse 4. So that through them, through them, through what, through what? Through the precious and great promises, through the all things, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Okay, what happened when you got saved? What happened at your conversion? What happened when the Holy Spirit came and regenerated you and caused you to be born again? You became a partaker of of the divine nature. Now we need to be very careful here. What does that not mean? It doesn't mean you become a God. It doesn't mean you become God-like. What it does mean is that you become a new creation in Christ. It means that as a partaker of the divine nature, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He's transforming you from the inside out. These very great and precious promises, these all things come to you through regeneration where you're made a new creation in Christ, where you partake of the divine nature, where the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, when you became a Christian... You became a partaker of the divine nature. doesn't mean you became a god or you were godlike in all respects. It means that you were a new creation in Christ because the Holy Spirit came and lived inside you. And what happened? You escaped, look at the last part of verse 4, you escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. You had a break with your old life. Your old life of sin has died. So you have a new position Your new position as a Christian, think about this, is that you are a partaker of the divine nature whereby God has granted to you all things and these very precious and great promises. And they come to you through being called. Now, this is the beauty of this. This new position in Christ and these powerful blessings are categorically true for us. We don't have to wish for them to be. We don't have to hope for them to be a reality. This powerful resource is ours in Christ. So this is not something you hope for. I hope one day I'll be a partaker of the divine nature. I hope one day I'll be regenerated. I hope one day the Holy Spirit will live in me. I hope one day God will give me everything I need. One day that will happen. What does Peter say? God has, what, past tense? He has already granted it to you. And because that verb is in the perfect tense, He granted it to you at your salvation, and it continues to be granted to you every day, every moment of the day. Now, let me ask you a question. That is true, right? But... 
do you just live the Christian life by osmosis where you go to bed with the Bible on your head and you wake up the next day and you've got the whole Bible memorized and do you, do you, are you lax in your Christian life? Do you just kind of coast? Or are these all things, these very precious and great promises, are they given to us so that we can live a life that is pleasing to God. And the question, or the answer to the question is yes, we are to put forth grace-empowered effort. Don't be afraid of the word effort. I put the word grace-empowered before that because Peter teaches it here. Just because these things are true doesn't mean we just sit back, let go, and let God coast, and we don't do anything about it. We've got to be very intentional of growing in our knowledge of Jesus. And so in verses 5 through 7, Peter's going to exhort us, he's going to encourage us to pursue a godly life with grace-empowered effort. And so Peter lists eight virtues, eight qualities, eight things that we are supposed to be pursuing, we're supposed to be working towards, we're supposed to be growing in, in our lives. Okay? So let's read this. For this, right, so verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. I want you to get the order right here. Notice how Peter puts the order. He puts grace or what we would call gospel indicatives, who we are in Christ, before the moral imperatives. Does this book start with verse 5? What would happen if Peter started with verse 5 and says, make every effort to supplement faith and virtue in your own power, make effort to do these things? What if he started there? What would you think? I can do that in my own power. I feel pretty good about that. I, 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 I can make that list. Or some of you may be like, I can never make that list. What's he start with? What's verse 3 start with? His divine power has granted to you all things. So he starts with grace first. Listen, you've been given grace in the gospel. You've been given all things. You've been given these very precious and great promises that empower you, that enable you, that energize you to be able to make every effort to pursue these eight things in your life. Okay? So when he says make every effort, be diligent to pursue these things. Supplement. The word supplement or add. It means to supply an extravagant measure or to provide beyond need. It means that we are to be growing in these things. So what are these eight things that Peter says we need to be growing in? Well, the first one, number one, is faith. 
Make every effort to supplement your faith. That's where it begins. Living a life of authentic trust in Christ and His finished work on your behalf. What does Romans 1, 16 and 17 tell us? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. How do we live the Christian life? By faith. Is it just a generic faith? It's faith in Christ. It's faith in Jesus. It's a faith in things we really can't see. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we're to be growing in our, number one, faith. Number two, add, supplement, grow in faith. Number two, virtue. I don't know what your translation says. The ESV uses the word virtue. It means morally upright. It is an outward action befitting a Christian demonstrated through our moral behavior. It means exceptional character. It means living an outwardly moral, upright, virtuous life. Okay. So not only living by faith, but also having good character, being morally upright. So we need to be growing in that. Number three, growing in knowledge. So supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge. Okay, Peter uses that word again. It's shown up, I think this is the third time. How do we grow in knowledge? We'll talk about this a little bit later as we go through here, but through scripture saturation and through prayer. Okay, so we've got faith. We've got virtue, we've got knowledge. What's next on the list? Verse 6, with knowledge, with, all right, number 4, self-control. Okay? Controlling yourself. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, 14 and 15, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who's called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Having control over your passions, having control over your lusts, not falling into temptation, um, not living in not not living towards your lusts, but being under control. Okay. All right. What's next? Verse six: Knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness. Number five. The word really means endurance, or the ability to persevere through trials. You need to be growing in your ability to endure. Um, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. There's the word. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. All right, stop. Do you see a parallel between this passage and what Peter just said? Peter gives us a list, right? Pursue faith and self-control and endurance. What does Paul say here? Okay, you need to grow in endurance, grow in character. It doesn't put us to shame because, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's almost the same way of saying God has given us all things 
God has given us these very great and precious promises. God has poured out His love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, God's supply of grace, gives us the ability to grow in these things. Okay, then number six, godliness. Living like God. Being an imitator of God. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Okay, what's next? Number seven, brotherly affection. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. And then to top everything off, what's the last on the list? You guys tell me, what's, what's the last on the list? Love. love. It's the last thing on the list because it sums everything up. Colossians three fourteen. Above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now there's more things you can be growing in, obviously. But Peter's list here is of eight things. And he says, make every effort to grow in these things. Don't be stagnant in these things. Don't just assume these things are going to happen. You have the ability and the power to grow in these things because God has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has given you these very precious and great promises through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit coming and living inside of you to be able to do this. So we're challenged here to grow in these areas. And, and here's just a side note. Every time, this is just for me personally, every time I come to a list like this in the Scriptures, whether it's the fruit of the Spirit or you see a list of virtues or a list of things, <clears throat> sometimes it can kind of be overwhelming. It's like, whoa, that's a, that's a big list. What I often do is I look over the list and see what, what's the area I'm the weakest in? What's the area I need the most help in? What's the area I struggle in the most? And that's the one that I really pray and ask God to, to help me in. So you may want to look at that list and say, you know what? What area do I really, I'm not excelling in, I'm not growing in, and maybe focus in on that. I mean, obviously we should be growing in all of them, but maybe just to help you start, pick the one on that list that you really struggle with and ask the Lord to give you the strength. It's interesting. Ask the Lord to give you the strength, but has He already given you the strength? Yeah, he's given you all things that relate to life and godliness. But then Peter does something here that can kind of be a little bit scary. I hope it's not. In verses 8 through 11, he tells us to examine yourself. Okay, let's read verses 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an interest into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Now, there's, there's different ways you can take this. If we were of the Arminian persuasion, we would look at this passage of Scripture and say, if you don't display these in your life, you're probably not saved and you've lost your salvation. But we're not those that believe we can lose our salvation. But the question is, if you aren't demonstrating any of these virtues, Peter says it should give you pause to stop and ask yourself, hmm, am I truly saved? I don't think that's what Peter's point is, because we'll look at that in just a few moments. But there is at appropriate times in your Christian life to examine yourselves. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Okay. Peter says in verse 8, if you have these qualities and they're growing, you're, 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 you're going to be effective and you're going to be fruitful. He puts it in the negative, okay? He says that they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful, okay? So if you aren't growing in these things, you're going to be ineffective and unfruitful. Now, does ineffective and unfruitful mean you've lost your salvation? No. It just means that you're ineffective and unfruitful. You're not going to grow. You're not going to bear fruit. You're not going to be living the life that God has called you to live. Okay? So, if you're truly a partaker in the divine nature, which I take back in verse 4, to mean you're truly regenerated, the Holy Spirit truly lives in you. If, you. if you're truly regenerate and you're not growing in these, it does not mean that you've somehow lost your salvation. What it does mean is that you've been temporarily lulled into drifting and you've forgotten that you've been cleansed and you're not living in the reality of who you are. Now, where do I get that? Look at verse 9. If you lack these qualities, so if you're not demonstrating these qualities, if you're lacking in these qualities, if you're not growing in these qualities, you're so nearsighted that you're blind. He doesn't say you've lost your salvation. He says you're blind. You've what? You have forgotten that you were cleansed. So it's not a matter of losing your salvation. It's a matter of forgetting these very great and precious promises. So let me just ask you a question. Are there times in your Christian life where you get dull and dry and lackadaisical and you feel like you're drifting and you just feel like you're not growing? You feel stagnant. Anybody ever been there? Okay. All of us have been there. So Peter says, hey, examine yourselves. Do an inventory. See if you're growing anything in these things. It doesn't mean you lost your salvation, but what it does mean is that you're forgetting. You're forgetting who you are. You're a partaker of the divine nature. You've been cleansed. You have been granted all things. So 
Peter's burden is to remind you of who you are. Not to scare you into thinking you're not saved, but to remind you that you are saved. And that you have these very great and precious promises and that the power is there for you to grow. So there's no excuse for you to keep being lulled into this sleep or or being stagnated. You don't have an excuse anymore. You've got the power available. And then in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Okay, get busy. Put forth some effort to do what? Confirm your calling and election. Now, some of you may be bothered here because Peter's... Look, look at some of these words. Verse 5, make every effort. Okay, verse 10, be all the more diligent. It's, it almost sounds like Peter's saying, put forth all this hard work to make sure you're growing. And it may at first glance sound like, well, that sounds like workspace righteousness. That sounds like uh, really workspace. Where's the grace in all this if it's all about effort and all about putting forth effort and all putting about diligence? Okay, how did I tell you everything started? What does he start with? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So any effort that we put forward comes from the grace that God's already supplied. Paul says it this way. Paul says the exact same thing. Paul and Peter agree on this. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does that sound like putting forth effort? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the only verse you had? It would be works-based. But what does verse 13 say? For it is God who does what? Works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Peter and Paul are saying the same thing. Both of them are saying, okay, work out your salvation. Make some effort. Don't just sit back and coast. Don't just let go on that God. Just don't hope it's going to happen by osmosis. You've got to put forth some energy. You've got to put forth some effort. But you don't do this in your own power. Peter says God's granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. God's giving you these very precious and great promises. That's what Peter says. Paul just says it a different way. Paul says it's God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. It's just a different way of saying it. So it's grace-empowered effort. Can't be lazy. Can't be haphazard. You can't just expect these things to happen. We've got to work out our salvation. But what does he tell us to confirm here? To make sure. Make sure you are saved. But he uses two words there. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. Let's start with election first, even though calling comes in there, because election comes first in time. When did God elect us? Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even as He chose us, there's the word, in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. 
When did God choose you? Before time. Okay. Just because God chose you, does that mean you're automatically saved? He chose you to be saved. But what happened at a point in time? What are the two words there? Confirm your calling and your election. The the election took place in eternity past when God chose you. When did the calling take place? The calling took place at a point in time when God called you to Himself. Okay, let's go back to that Romans 8.30 passage. I talked to you. I said I'm going to show it to you again. Those whom He predestined. Is predestined the same thing as election? Pretty much. Okay, does calling or election come first in, the, in the Romans 8.30? Those whom He predestined. When did the predestination take place? Before time. He also did what? Called at a point in time. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also called. Okay? So what comes first? The election comes first in eternity past. The calling comes at a point in time when God calls you. He opens your heart. You believe. The reason you believe is because you were chosen to believe and God called you. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14 teaches this. Okay, you guys look at the order here. But we should always give thanks to you, to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has what? Chosen you when? From the beginning. For what? Salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. Verse 14, it was for this He called you through our gospel so that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What comes first? Election, then calling. Okay? So what Peter's saying here is this. As a Christian, you've been elected, predestined, chosen by God before the foundation of the world. At a point in time, God has called you to Himself. And when God called you to Himself, He made you partakers of the divine nature. And as a result of that, He's given you everything you need for life and for godliness. He's given you these great and very precious promises. Therefore, don't just sit back and say, that's cool. Therefore, put forth grace and powered effort to grow in these eight qualities. And as you grow in these, you'll be effective, you'll be fruitful, you'll be ministering, you'll be giving to others, you'll be living in the joy of what it means to be a growing Christian. Okay? He says if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, does that mean, some have taken this to mean, those that believe you can lose your salvation, those that have a little bit different belief system than us, look at verse 10 and say, man, if you're not practicing these qualities you're going to fall. In other words, they would say, there's a measuring stick. If you don't live up to these eight qualities, then you're going to lose your salvation. Let me ask you a question. How do you know that you're doing all eight of those all the time perfectly? You always be living in fear of losing your salvation. I don't think he's saying here you're going to lose your salvation. Because what it means is, look at this passage of Scripture. Let's go back to the the Romans passage. Those whom he predestined, he also called. 
Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, if God chose you in eternity past, and God called you, and God regenerated you, and God has given you these very great and precious promises, and God promises to glorify you, is there any way you can fall if you're truly saved? Jude 24 tells us, find it here. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling or falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This passage in Romans is called the golden chain of redemption. Now, why is it called the golden chain of redemption? What's a chain? What's a chain? Different links, right? Okay. If there's links to a chain, what happens if you break a link? It's no longer a chain. So all the links have got to go together, right? So there's links that go together on this golden chain. And the order is important. And God does all of these things for a believer from first to last. So what is involved in the golden chain of redemption? We've talked about this. What comes first? Those whom he predestined. Okay, when does predestination take place? Before time. That's the first chain in the link or the link in the chain. Okay, what's the next link? Those whom he predestined, he also called. So there's a calling. Calling comes in time. It creates that saving faith that grants us the ability to believe. Okay, what's next in the chain? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also what? Justified. Okay, what does it mean to be justified? Well, the only way you can be justified is by faith. When you trust Christ by faith, he takes all of your sin out of your account and puts it in Christ's and puts all of Christ's righteousness into your account, therefore you can be declared not guilty in God's sight. What's last on the chain? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. What's it mean to be glorified? That speaks of future, right? Glorification is our future home in heaven with our resurrected bodies where we will be provided entrance into heaven. In the golden chain of redemption, all of those verbs are in the past tense, which makes sense. When were you predestined? Was it past tense? Yes. When were you called? Okay, this doesn't apply to those that aren't Christians yet. If you're a Christian, were you called? Okay. If you're a Christian, were you justified? If you're a Christian... Were you glorified? Not yet. Because glorification is future. Is anybody here in heaven? Anybody here got their glorified body? So the question then becomes, why does Paul use glorified in the past tense when it is a future reality for all believers? Because in Paul's mind, it's already a done deal. What God started in eternity past, He will be faithful to complete in eternity future. He says it a different way in Ephesians. 
2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Anybody up in heaven seated there right now? Physically, you're not there yet, but spiritually and in God's mind, are you already there? So you see, in God's mind, you're already got your home in heaven. That's why Paul can use glorified in the past tense as if it's already a done deal. So what Peter's saying here is, God has chosen you. God has called you. God has made you new. And God will sustain you to the end. And God has given you every great and precious promise. God's given you all things. While you live life on this earth until that day, pursue these qualities in your life so that you can grow closer to Christ. You can grow in your faith. You can be productive. You can be fruitful. You can live the life that God has called you to live. Okay? Then he's going to give us a, a reminder to stir us to obedience. Verses 12 through 15, a reminder. This is Paul, he, he, he wants to remind us. He wants us to remember. Paul's main point is that he's writing here to remind these believers to pursue these eight godly virtues he's just listed. So let's read verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Okay, what are these qualities? These eight things he's just listed. Though you know them, you know what they are, and you're established in the truth that you have, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter says, listen, you you know this stuff. What's he say in verse 12? You know these things. You've been established in these things. This is not anything new. You know who you are in Christ. You know that, that God has saved you. You know you're supposed to grow in these things. So if we know these things, why aren't we doing them? What's Peter's point? It's very easy in the Christian life to what? Forget who we are, forget what we're supposed to do, and and we need that encouragement. So in verse 13, what does he say? I want to stir you up. I want to agitate you. I want to get you energized. I want to keep reminding you of these things. You've got to... so, so, So... I've, I've wanted to do a study on this, and I've got the Bible program Logos on my computer, and I can probably do this later on, but um, I want to do a study on how many times Old Testament, New Testament, the Bible tells us to remember. I bet you it shows up a lot. Remember, remember, remember. Why would the Bible over and over and over again tell us to remember? Because we don't remember. <laughs> and Peter's like, it's not because you don't know it. Verse 12, you know it. You you know these things. It's true. You've been taught these things. It's just that you're not living in the the light of who you are. 
So Peter says, as long as I'm alive, and I know my time is coming short, as long as I'm alive, I want to keep reminding you of these things. I want to keep telling you. That's what I do as a pastor. Every Sunday, I get up there. Now, it may be a different text, but you may be thinking, like, he's a broken record. He's telling us the same thing over and over again. Well, because the Bible tells us the same thing over and over again. Don't you need somebody in your life to constantly remind you? I think it's very difficult to live the Christian life in isolation where you don't have somebody coming along and stirring you up and encouraging you. It reminds me, just turn real quick to Hebrews chapter 10 for a minute in your Bible. It's just a few, few books over. This just popped into my head. It's not in your notes, but it's very similar. The writer of Hebrews gives us um, the same concept here. Peter's saying, I'm writing these things to stir you up to remember these things, so you'll do them. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Isn't that same word there Peter uses? Stir up one another to love and good works, not to collect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are called to encourage one another, to stir one another up. So here's the point, guys and gals. These eight things we should be encouraging each other in. We should be loving each other, encouraging each other, challenging each other, walking with each other to grow in these things. Because you're not going to grow in these things by yourself. God has given us a church family to help us to grow in these things. And Peter says, until the day I die, I'm going to keep reminding you of this. And I'm going to put forth um, effort and there he says in verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, after I die, you're going to be remembering these things. You're going to get so sick of me, sick of me saying these things that after I die and I'm not around to tell you those things anymore, they're still going to be stuck in your head and they're going to be able to come up because I'm going to keep reminding you, keep reminding you. Okay? The key word is remember so that we'll have these things embedded in our souls. Okay? Now, he shifts gears here for a little bit in verse 16, he's going to address his apostolic authority. What we mean by apostolic authority is Peter's an apostle. And as apostle, that means he was an eyewitness of Jesus. We know that, right? We know Peter was with Jesus. Um, as we'll see this Sunday, Peter denied Jesus three times. But there were false teachers in the church that were trying to question Peter's leadership. They would, be coming to, they would be like, okay, Peter's the pastor. He's teaching. These false teachers would come in and say, don't listen to Peter. He has no idea what he's talking about. He's making this stuff up. He thinks he saw Jesus. He thinks he was one of Jesus' disciples, but that was 30 years ago. He's seen now now. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't listen to Peter. Especially when he talks about the second coming. Christ isn't coming back. Live however you want. We'll find that out in chapter 3. Okay, so Peter's um, addressing these false teachers. And so Peter's going to say, listen, I do have authority because I was there. And not only was I there, but I was there at a very special time that only two other disciples got to see. So let's read verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am very well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, 
for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, listen, the life, death, burial, resurrection, second coming of Jesus, these aren't clever man-made myths that we just made up. As a matter of fact, Peter says, I was with Jesus physically for three years. I was the leader of the disciples. I was in the inner circle, and I got to see something that the other disciples didn't. Peter, James, and John and I were invited up to the mount, and we got to see the Mount of Transfiguration. You guys remember the Mount of Transfiguration? That's what he's talking about. Now, Peter here is addressing the coming of the Lord. He says, we, verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, listen, Jesus is coming back in power and glory. And the reason I know this is because I saw it the first time when he was on the mountain in power and glory. It's going to be even greater when he comes back a second time. Matthew 25, 31, there's a lot of verses that talk about the Son, Jesus, coming back in power and glory. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10 talks about the second coming. To grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus has revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God... And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. Peter says, listen, Jesus is coming back. And He's coming back in power. And He's coming back in glory. And it's going to be amazing. But I just want to remind you, I saw a glimpse of that when I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. So when Peter here talks about being an eyewitness to his majesty, when they heard the voice of the Father, when they heard the voice come from heaven, when they were on the holy mountain, he's talking about the man of Trans- Mount of Transfiguration. So back in Matthew chapter 17, 1 through 5, we have the account of this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter was there on the mountain. And what did he see? Jesus glorified, transfigured. in the voice of God the Father booming from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So Peter says, listen, I was there. I was an apostle. I was an eyewitness. Only three of us got to see it. It was glorious. It was the closest thing that, that, that I know of about the fullness of, of God's glory in Christ Jesus. And he's going to come back in power and glory. And it's going to be even greater than what I alone got to see. All of us will see him when he comes back. So here's a question for you. You don't have the privilege that Peter had, did you? Anybody here live with Jesus three years physically? Anybody here get to see him resurrected? 
Anybody here get to put their hands in his side after he rose from the dead? Anybody here get to be on the Mount of Transfiguration? If you have, come back afterwards and talk to me because I want to know if this has happened to you because we need to have a talk. We don't have those privileges, but we have something that Peter says is actually greater. We have the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. And this is where Peter goes in verses 19 through 21. He's going to talk about the Scriptures. So as great as it was for Peter to be on that mountain, as great as it was to see Jesus in the flesh being glorified, as great as it was to hear the voice of the Father, Peter says, we've got something that's more sure because that was only a one-time event and it was only three people that got to see it. So what is more permanent? What is something that all of us as believers have access to it? What's the one place that we can see the glory of God? Peter says it's in the Scriptures. So let's read verses 19 through 21. We and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says, we have a prophetic word more sure, more fully convinced. In other words, for us today, we've not seen Jesus glorified before us in the flesh, but we do have the written scriptures as the final authority. So verse 19, I think, is Peter's main point up to this point in the, in the letter. His point in verse 19 Until Jesus comes back in power and glory, pay attention to the light of the written word of God. What's the primary way God has given you all things that you need for life and for godliness? He's given you the Holy Spirit, right? To live inside of you. But He's also given you great and precious promises through the written word of God so you know how to grow in these things. And so what does he say there in verse 19? You will do well to pay attention to the lamp shining in a dark place. The lamp shining in a dark place reminds us of Psalm 119, 105. I'll I'll say it in the King James. That's the way I remember it growing up. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God shines in a dark place. The Bible, the written scriptures is God's confirmed word that's a light to our feet, a lamp that shines in dark places. And then notice what he says there. Until, so the Bible is our light until what? When are we not going to need the Bible anymore? I mean, God's word is going to last forever, but when we see Jesus face to face and we go to heaven, I'm not saying the Bible's irrelevant, so don't say that. I'm just saying that there comes a time where we are going to see Jesus face to face and we're going to be in heaven. But until that, so we pay attention to the written word of God until that day comes when he comes back. That's what he's saying there. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until what? The day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's the day that dawns? It's the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the morning star rises in your hearts. 
Jesus compares, or Peter compares Jesus coming back to the morning star rising in our hearts. Now, where do we hear a rising star? There's a prophecy back in Numbers chapter 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. A star will come out of Jacob. Jesus is that star that comes out of the lineage of Jacob. And so what is Peter's point here? His point is this. Until Jesus comes back, the only sufficient truth we have is the written word of God that shines a light in the darkness. Yet, when Jesus comes back in power and glory, we will see him face to face and our hearts will be filled with the light and joy that we will be with him in heaven. So pay attention to the scriptures until Jesus comes back. God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has given to us these very great and precious promises. God has made us partakers of the divine nature. Pursue these things in your life. Make your calling and election sure and pay attention to the written word of God as the, as the sufficient means to grow you in your faith. And then Peter gives us the nature of Scripture. He explains the nature of Scripture. In verses 20 and 21, what does he say? Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Okay, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is the product of someone's own interpretation. It's not human will. It's not clever thoughts. It wasn't as if Peter, Paul, James, Matthew sat down and said, hey, I'm going to write some cool things. Let's just make up some things. It was written down by men. But ultimately, it was God's very breath. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture, okay, all Scripture. So the totality, all of it, of Scripture, the written, the written Scripture, is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work scripture is god breathed okay it's all scripture the totality of it what does it mean breathed out by god what does it mean the written word is breathed out by god the greek word is theonustos theos god pneuma breath it's it's a rare word it's only used for the scriptures only the bible is theonistos only the bible is god breathed there's nothing else out there that's actually god breathed his very word written down into scripture the quran is not god breathed the book of mormon's not god breathed any other sacred writings not god breathed the written scriptures that we have from genesis to revelation is the only God-breathed truth that we have. So what it means is this. God breathed out His very Word into the minds and hearts of the writers of Scripture so that what was written down is the literal Word of God down to the very 
last detail. We don't know exactly how this happened. Peter gives us some insight. What does he say there? Verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke who? From God. What's the source? God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know exactly how God did this process. We're never really told the actual process in great detail as to how he breathed out his words into the hearts and minds of the writers. But we do know that the final product, the written scriptures, the sacred writings, is inherently and fundamentally God-breathed. But Peter gives us insight into this process. What's he say there? Human authors were what? Does your translation use the word carried along? They were carried along. Let me give you another passage of Scripture where that word is used. Acts 27, 15 through 17. This is when Paul was on the ship. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the surface, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Same Greek word. Now, we need to make careful that we don't press the analogy too far. But Paul says the wind hit the sails of the ship and carried along. The Holy Spirit, like the wind, carried along the writers to write down what God wanted them to write down. Again, we don't know a lot of the details about how this happened, but what we can say is this. The human authors were powerfully and supernaturally guided by the Holy Spirit to write the Scriptures. Somehow, God worked in their hearts and minds to actually write down exactly what He wanted written down. So that the final product we have is God-breathed. So that we can trust that what we have is the written Scriptures. All Scripture is breathed out as the Word of God. It's not the product of men, but has its ultimate origin in God Himself. If that's what Scripture is, the very God-breathed Word, the only sufficient rule of faith and godliness, Peter's point is this. Therefore, since God's written Word is fully truthful and authoritative, what does he say back there in verse 19? We should pay attention to it. How do you pay attention to God's written Word? Through careful reading, through study, through memorization, through meditation, so that we can daily be reminded of the gospel. What has Peter been saying over and over again? I want to remind you. I want to remind you. You need to be reminded. Well, how are you reminded? You're reminded by the scriptures. So you need to be reading your Bible, studying your Bible. God has given to you all things. God has given to you very great and precious promises. God has given you the Holy Spirit to live inside you to help you understand this word. God has given you everything you need in the Holy Spirit. 
and in the written scriptures for life and godliness. And he's given you a church family to help encourage you to grow in these virtues. So what Peter's point is, the more we saturate ourselves in the scriptures, the more we will come to fully know. The word knowledge shows up. We will come to fully know how God has granted us everything we need for life and godliness. And as a result, we will grow in these eight virtues or qualities of holiness and thus prove out that we are truly chosen and called by God. Thus, 2 Peter chapter 1. Are there any questions about this chapter? Or comments? Or observations? Or clarifications? Or snide remarks? Or $10 million bills? Or, I mean... Guys, good? All right. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you that you have granted to us everything that we need, all things, these very great and precious promises, Lord, for life and for godliness. And you've, you've made us partakers of the divine nature. You've given us new life in Christ. You've caused us to be born again and We have the resources we need to grow in these areas. And so, Lord, I pray for us that we would grow in these areas. We would grow in reading your word. We would pay attention to the the light of your word shining in a dark place. And, Lord, we'd come to to know you more and more through, through study, through reading, through growing. And, Lord, if there's any particular areas of weakness that we have in these eight areas, would you reveal those to us and, and would you give us an extra measure of grace to grow in those areas so that we would be fruitful, we would be productive, we would be living the life that you called us to live. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.